This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. episode 287 of the craft and brewing podcast and joining me from chicago remotely is the chief marketing officer for revolution brewing and also the person behind the beer crunchers blog and the beer aficionado social medias uh and you know funny sketch comedy out there on the the tiktok and instagram and all of those things um doug valicki thanks for joining me on the podcast doug thanks for having me jamie i'm excited to be here Last time we talked, I think it was uh, mid-pandemic, sometime in late 2020, and uh, um, you know, as we were reaching out and trying to make some connections in our, in our isolated worlds, um, and uh, it's taken us this long to get uh, together and have a conversation. But you know, I read a fantastic blog post that you put up on Beer Crunchers talking about uh, what's in store for 2023, and so I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk about what's next in beer for this. Uh, probably tumultuous year um it's shaping up to be an interesting one so far uh 2022 was was uh you know uh, certainly caught us by surprise in a lot of ways also and some of the things that we thought were going to happen aren't happening and some of the things we never predicted would happen are happening and uh, and so for this conversation we're also going to excerpt this into our brewing industry guide as a conversation uh, within that uh, business to business uh, approach um, so this will be kind of focused on on craft beer business and uh, you know kind of the broader soul of craft beer and business of craft beer all together looking forward to picking your brain on uh, what you see happening out there from your unique perspective having uh, run with that kind of financial background CFO background as well as looking at it from a marketing perspective uh, with revolution in this kind of uh, you know, beer business side. We're going to talk about all of that, but first, for years, GD Chillers has chilled the beers you love, partnering with 3,000 plus breweries across the country. They're proud of the cool partnerships they've built, offering 24 7 service and support. GD builds with non proprietary parts, expert craftsmanship, and constant innovation. GD's in house engineering crew have been piping breweries, wineries, and distilleries for over 30 years. They're offering free piping design and consultation with the sale of every chiller they build. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, this episode is brought to you by BSG, distributors of TNS hop oils. Looking for a way to save on freight, reduce waste, all while improving beer quality? Then change your brewing game with TNS hop oils. Visit bsgcraftbring.com to learn how TNS hop oils can make your beer and your margins better. So Doug, we normally kick off the podcast with a little bit of background. Why don't you give us some on you? What uh, what was that arc through beer for you? And what led you uh, into pursuing this as a career uh, and uh, then getting deep into this business side of, uh, of craft beer? Sure. I was a, an accountant by trade, studied accounting and economics. And then so I got my CPA, did a traditional audit route at one of the big four accounting firms. And then um, went into consulting for a little bit, but still like accounting-based consulting, helping companies with issues with their, their accounting. And that led me to going in-house at a company that kind of just happened to be in the beer business, which was Reyes Holdings. They're the largest beer distributor in the country, among other things, um, all tied to logistics. They do McDonald's, Coca-Cola, and uh, used to do Broadline Food Service while I was there. So I worked there from 2009 to 2016. So when I started, craft beer was 
barely, if at all, part of what they did. And then over those first couple years, especially here in Chicago where I worked, you know, um, their beer distributors started bringing on some of the early local craft breweries, which in Chicago was us, Revolution, and um, brands like Half Acre as well, Metropolitan. And um, so craft beer all of a sudden became part of the culture in the office. You know, there used to always be a rule that if you stayed past five o'clock, you could have a beer from the fridge. And at the time, it would be, you know, Miller, Coors, Heineken, and Corona. That would be what was in the fridge, and that was fine for me at the time. But then all of a sudden, we started seeing Daisy Cutter. We started seeing Antihero. And I got the bug early, and seeing it kind of like part of uh, a small shift that the, that company was undergoing, it became a big shift as, as far as an interest from me. I've always been into better beer, dating back to before it was you know, even street legal for me, but I won't bore you with uh, that story arc. But uh, career wise, you know, I got the itch for it and I was involved at their kind of holding company level. So I was only partially involved with the beer side. It was like a quarter of what I got exposure to and what I got to do. But um, it was great experience. I got to see craft beer and, and how it got kind of moved around and sold into stores at kind of the highest level by working at this giant company, which is now they're like the sixth biggest private con uh, company in the country. But I've always been like a very small business guy and I always wanted to be more hands-on. And when you're at a company that large, there's only so much you can do that's like hands-on craft beer. So I got the itch as the... Um, scene kind of rose in Chicago um, where I wanted to be in it. I wanted to be a part of it. So that's when I started, like I created the social media feeds just to start kind of showing my love of beer. And um, at the time it was really bad content, but it was just me like learning um, and, and just trying to come up with something new to say every day. It was good practice back in 2013 doing this. Uh, that eventually turned into my blog a few years later, just trying to layer on more and more just to showcase what I know. I've, it's like I hate the traditional resume route for applying for a job. I feel like it's, uh, it comes down to a lot of luck, but the more you can have to showcase why you're the perfect person for the job you want. Um, that was kind of a lot of the inspiration for what I did in those early days. And that's what helped me get the job at Revolution, which originally was the uh, CFO, kind of leaning on my traditional experience. But as I was doing that, I was doing kind of these sort of like self-marketing things, but kind of helping market craft beer to other beer fans by kind of building connections with other fans. So I started like building a little bit of marketing expertise, at least in the craft beer sense. And when I started at Revolution, you know, mark and I, there's no marketing team in the country at any craft brewery that I think feels that they're fully staffed and has all the help they need. Everybody could always use extra arms and legs to pull off some of the big events they're doing. So I was just always someone who, even though I was the, the finance guy, I always wanted to plug into marketing in any way I could. And then as some people like left the company and there were like kind of gaps to fill while new hires were being sought, I'd always be the first to raise my hand and would end up like for long periods of time taking over like the development of packaging and social media even while I was doing my finance role. And that's just kind of the, the quick story of how I ended up going from the kind of head of finance to the head of marketing over like a six and a half year span. It was very gradual and now it just became official that I get to just just focus on marketing now, which is simplifies my life a little bit. So I'm excited. You just worked yourself into the job that you wanted. <laughs> uh, um, just so I be no, it is a it is a funny thing. You look at it now in retrospect. Ten years ago in 2013, as craft breweries started to pop up all over the place, you know, it wasn't like there was this existing team of experienced, you know, craft beer marketers 
that could uh, you know slot right into the, all of the roles that companies now and had in terms of demand for talent. And so, um, in a lot of ways, I mean, you know, craft brewers had to invent the people to fill the jobs. Um, some people certainly came from parallel moves from other things, but you know, for a lot, and a lot of it, uh, you know, they're, they're, we've watched the experience now grow over the last ten years. But certainly in the early days, it was. Uh, it's a different kind of challenge finding folks that could get into those kinds of roles, and then, of course, would take the pay cut to do it in craft beer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, let's uh, I, let's talk, you know, a little bit about your viewpoint now. And I love that you come at it from both a you know a kind of a, a rigorous, uh, numbers-based, financial data-driven uh, you know piece, as well as looking at this kind of big picture and possibilities and, and uh, being able to identify what uh, breweries are doing out there in the market and what they're doing well. So let's talk about some of this. But first, what is AccuBrew? It's an analytical tool designed to collect and compare the information you need to refine your fermentation process by tracking your sugar conversion clarity and temperature in every batch. But why do you need AccuBrew? AccuBrew is more than a glorified speedometer. AccuBrew is an ever-evolving tool tailored to you, your process, and your business. Save time, protect your schedule, and detect problems before they happen. Quality, consistency, and confidence, that's what AccuBrew delivers. Also, at ProBrew, they believe that your brewery deserves equipment as unique as the drinks that you craft. That's why their solutions are specifically designed to help you brew your beer, not someone else's. From brewing to fermenting to carbonating and can filling, ProBrew's customizable equipment empowers breweries to expand operations at their own pace. For more information, visit www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. ProBrew, brew your beer. And scheduling freight carriers should be the last thing on a brewer's mind, so why not trust the experts to handle freight for your ingredients? Old Orchard has partnered with a leading logistics firm in the craft beverage industry to transport your flavored craft concentrate blends. When you order two pails or more from Old Orchard, you qualify for freight quotes to get started Head on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. First on my mind right now, Doug, is uh, I think the news that was buzzing this week, uh, you know, was was New Belgium's news about Fat Tire. Uh, we've watched this broader industry trend uh, around unbrand or lower branding. I shouldn't call it that. Maybe we'll call it uh, removing a brewery branding and focusing on a beer brand first and foremost. Um, it's been a big trend even within craft brewers. Obviously, it's worked out great for Firestone Walker with 805 and building a family of beers that are appealing to a different kind of customer set than maybe the you know the more uh, crafty focused uh, consumers for the the primary. Uh, brand on that, you know, with New Belgium, Fat Tire, of course, is an iconic brand. And now when they announce that they're changing the beer in order to be more palatable to a broader audience, uh, there's certainly, it's certainly created a buzz within those fans of the existing beer. Um, I think like we look at Coke or New Coke, uh, I'm not sure where, I don't know that there's a huge downside on this. I mean, of course, we can talk, we'll talk about New Belgium in terms of an imperial IPA and uh, building IPA brands later on. Um, but this is a this is an interesting move from your perspective. Uh, you know, how do you read this? I see it as they that they have this property, this intellectual property that is the Fat Tire brand. That uh, probably more than half of the people that uh, buy Fat Tire think that Fat Tire is the name of the brewery. They don't even realize they're buying a beer from this brewery called New Belgium. They think it's just Fat Tire Brewing. And it was massive. I mean, it was one of, if not the biggest craft beer in the country, maybe 
second or third to Sierra, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, um, not probably less than 10 years ago. And so it's, it's too big to just ignore and let sit on the shelf or let go away and die. Um, but I think the liquid uh, became very stale in the minds of most, you know, young consumers in their 20s and 30s. That it's just like, sure, are there exceptions to that, of course. Um, but I feel like the brand stale, is stale in what way? In terms of not hitting that more light golden blonde kind of place where you're going to a sporting event or going to a concert in an outdoor amphitheater kind of audience that the kind of beer that they can drink in a decent kind of quantity and not i mean is there is what, what do you think about that was uh you know uh, feeling older yeah i think there's like a couple different flavor profiles that are that'll work there's like the the kind of golden ale taste that they're gonna that they're going for now that is kind of like a craftier version of a premium lager you know a golden ale can taste relatively similar especially to a, a you know a non-brewer as something at least that would cross over well to something they would like and then there's of course the flavors of ipas which are um, you know whether bitter or not have like big fruit flavors whether that's citrusy or tropical to me fat tires traditional recipe does none of those things and it's just kind of like the uh old man, old woman kind of style that is just, you know, there's still people that like it. It's just less and less every year. And it's, it's snowballed to the point where it was like, you know, the brand is, is still good and has all this potential. It can be so many things, but why not uh, try something different with the liquid and weave a story that has potential to resonate with, um, you know, a large swath of consumers. So yeah, it's it's more that it it doesn't the old fat tired answer your question is is nothing like an IPA and it's also nothing like what sells the most which is like a you know American lager or American light lager. Sure, and so you know I think for craft beer fans of uh, of a certain generation and I count myself amongst that generation uh, because I certainly did start drinking craft beer in the decade in which they started brewing uh, uh, fat tire or at least uh, started growing it back there in the nineties. You, you know, there it seems. I mean, there's a certain nostalgia I think that uh, that a lot of us have towards this, and that feeling that uh, something can change. Uh, you know, feels like we might be losing something. It's funny how we collectively feel this sense of ownership over something uh, as simple as a beer recipe. The other the other piece that I find really funny is that they had already changed that recipe. <laughs> that right. uh, uh, a, you know, when uh, you know, and they didn't even talk about it. But after after you know, Peter Bacart left the brewery, um, I mean, they went about revamping a lot of their recipes, and they just did it quietly and subtly. Um, you know, but some of the beers were even with those even taking the approach they had, I mean, they had been tweaking and tweaking. I mean, I think beers like 1554 tasted better than they ever had, uh, you know, taking that kind of fresh, updated approach, making them what they are and, the, you know, what the idea of the beer should be, but just kind of modernizing it a little bit. Um, what, another, you know, is, another thing they, sorry, another thing they did with it that I think is very fascinating and something that just, uh, most craft breweries are not organized enough to do this and not methodical enough as New Belgium is, but it's like, that beer was this new beer was out there in the market for months and months and months and nobody was talking about this change like with the new liquid with the new packaging how did this go like five months until it became a, a twitter story and and why why are they not talking about it why could i not find this label on their website that's in the market and i think that's i think they have a, a history of doing this where they they test things out it's like a 
they they just did it in like two markets, probably their own and and one other. And I think they're testing taking the New Belgium name off it and just seeing what happens before they make it because this is a beer that's sold in 50 states. It's like we saw with a hard Mountain Dew that didn't just go to 50 states; they pulsed it into three states to learn a few lessons before they, you know, just go wide. I think uh, New Belgium was trying to quietly get some reactions to this and see what happened with it in case they wanted to make one last tweak or two before going wide. I'm sure they were confident they were going to do this, but wanted to see if there's anything they should change before going nationwide. And so I I thought that was fascinating. And and they've done this with other things. They've done it with Voodoo Ranger, where they've tested certain Voodoo Ranger brands taking New Belgium off and then adding it back on. And uh, that's smart. It's just something that most breweries don't have the luxury or the patience or the kind of uh, timeline to to go through those kind of stages of uh, launching a new brand. Brand building at that kind of scale, you know, is certainly a risky endeavor. But it's funny, the success of Voodoo Ranger, in a way, has given them some leeway to work on and play with and experiment with the Fat Tire brand. You know, it no longer has to be that giant tentpole holding up the entire tent. You know, Voodoo Ranger as a brand uh, is now bigger than Fat Tire, um, you know, in terms of volume for the brewery. But let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, you know, through the pandemic and even continuing this year, you know, when we look at the the numbers of, you know, beers that are selling out there in the market, uh, you and I all, we, we look at those IRI numbers and we, you know, see what is selling out there in the broader uh, world of, of commercial beer sales. Um, the story is generally not good for every single craft beer brand out there. When you look at those l- largest brands and the IRI numbers, everyone is de- everyone is declining in a general broad sense, um, with one exception, and that one exception seems to be New Belgium, which has been able to grow the Voodoo Ranger brand in that. And the strangest story that came out of the pandemic was the growth of their Imperial IPA at this 10% ABV, um, which seemed to fly in the face of all conventional logic in the beer world that said people want to drink smaller beers and you know drink more of them. Um, you know, from your perspective, and I, I, this really hit me because last week I got a press release from New Belgium and about their new Fruit Force beer, and uh, the line was, it comes in at a drinkable 9.5%, or <laughs> a, a very drinkable 9.5%. I thought... This, this is a crazy world we live in now. Um, from your perspective, how do you explain this? Well, I think that I think that craft brewers for a while were pushing pushing an agenda and, and uh, skewing too much toward what the brewers and what the people that work at a brewery all day every day want, which is lower ABV styles. You know, we're um, we're kind of the decision makers on what we make and what we prioritize, and so I think there was probably a widespread over doing it on low ABV styles and trying to hope that that narrative would play out, that consumers would want the style of beer that um, is also what we want to drink at the end of the day from while working at a brewery. Um, while on the other side, I think consumers and what especially the hyper-engaged craft consumer, the loyal ones that are go to the store every week and pick up that same uh, beer or same uh, a beer from the same family or uh, of beers within a brewery's portfolio that are just really loyal. I, I don't think that's necessarily what they want. I think they want more. They want more flavor and they want more alcohol. And in a lot of cases, you know, um, you know, we talk a lot about how you know craft beer can't compete with macro breweries and the pricing that they offer. 
But there's a lot of instances where if you actually do some math on ABV to price, where a lot of times craft beer is actually a better deal. I think right now, if you look at our like IPA anti-hero and how much alcohol, that's not how I make decisions, but I think that has, if you look at um, anti-hero versus like Modelo on the shelf in like a six pack, I think anti-hero is actually a better deal for somebody shopping for alcohol. Now, obviously Modelo is a <laughs> extremely popular brand and has a very, very loyal following. But I think a lot of people shop like that. And I think New Belgium, you know, I said this in my blog post, well, everybody was going low quite a few years ago. New Belgium decided to bet on high and use their scale to offer pretty high um, imperial IPAs at a lower price than we're used to seeing. And it worked. The the buzz to bucks ratio uh, is definitely in their favor on that one. I think you know, you're right. If you're going to, you know, command a, a premium or a, you know, kind of a mid premium price for a product like that, that's out there in grocery stores, um, you know, and, and especially through the pandemic, I mean, when people were trying to be efficient and, you know, you, you were living at home, working from home, uh, you have a limited amount of fridge space. I mean, it's a weird one to think about, you know, packing the most ABV into the smallest footprint within your refrigerator, but uh, that's exactly what they were able to do. Um, you know, thinking about that brand now, last, you know, I, I think their entire, I mean, that's more than half of all Voodoo Ranger sales now. Last I heard, it was over 300,000 barrels of just that one beer uh, coming out of, out of the, the breweries, which is just a wild thing to think about for that. And, um, well, you know, let's look at the flip side. You know, the that session IPA piece is, is something else that you talk about. It's, uh, you know, it's something that we all thought there might be more opportunity in, but, and it, it certainly grew, 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 uh, maybe only on the backs of one brand, Founders All Day IPA, and then, and, you know, others that were trying to kind of occupy that space also. Um, but that seems to kind of have hit its, uh, its plateau and, and is pulling back a little bit. Yeah, um, it's theirs has been has been down a, a sizable amount. Still, not nothing that they would not to the point where they would move away from it. Just the at the point where they need to throw throw new things at it to to give it a, to give it a boost, um, which they've done with some line extensions. You know, we we put out a product probably oh, I want to say it was five years ago called Everyday Hero. There was an IPA that's uh, still around, not for much longer, I don't think, but. Uh, um, we, we tried the 15 pack and it's not that it didn't work. It's just that when you try to go that low on price and offer consumers the economy package, um, that, that gives them like a, a bunch of beers for a much better price. Um, it, it's not that like it doesn't have a fan base and that people weren't picking it up every week, but you just, you need that to, uh, to really hit a certain number of, uh, amount of volume to make sense. And for us, it was just like kind of hovering around as the, like the eighth most successful thing we were doing out of like 12. And for a beer with those kind of different economics, it really needed to be like fourth or higher for it to make sense for us to, to do. Otherwise, it just became this, this thing that we kept making that just wasn't, the, the numbers just weren't adding up for trying to keep it fresh in the market, not always gonna be cold, and was it selling through fast enough that we felt comfortable that the beer was gonna be in good condition uh, in all instances when people eventually, uh, when it finally made it into someone's fridge and into their mouth. 
Um, and that's what we were just like getting nervous about and decided like that this wasn't just wasn't a big enough success for us to keep doing and that we already have a year round pale ale that's not the same, but it's close enough. I mean, it's five and a half percent. Do we really? So we felt we felt less of a desire to uh, go that low. And, you know, we saw the locale IPA uh, kind of come and go pretty fast in the industry. That might have just run into the worst timing possible of when those came out. But, um, I, yeah, I just see it as something that's not going to go away. You're going to see plenty of breweries that release a session IPA, especially if you're a smaller local brewery that can crank out, you know, seven new beers a month with a label and a can. Like, why not? But I just mean as like a big... Um, kind of top 100 kind of brewery is that going to uh, a trend we're going to see a lot of press we're going to get press releases on of like so and so releases new session IPA that's where I think uh, that there's better opportunity elsewhere um, and not trying to play in this go low space. That's it. it brings up a good question for me. You know, when you are looking at this, uh, you know, putting on your your chief marketing officer hat, um, you know, innovation is necessary within the beer world. But then at the same time, you have to have revised expectations about how long any product, you know, lifespan, what kind of lifespan they have, what's potentially possible here. As you all think about developing new brands to push this innovation piece, what's the expectation for those? You know, how much, you know, with everything, you've got to give time to grow and you've got to put resources into uh, helping it connect with consumers out there, but you also don't want to throw good money after bad and keep trying to prop something up if it's not actually working. Um, and at the same time, you know, as we see, some things come and they go pretty quickly, and that's just the nature of things. You can make some, you know, not your father's root beer had its moment where it was the biggest thing ever, and then uh, you know now it's was supplanted by seltzer, and even now seltzer is uh, is starting to see some, you know, it's starting to feel a little bit older, and uh, you know, but from you looking at what is this lifespan of a brand, you know, typically uh, from your perspective, how you know what's that build phase and what's that kind of maintenance phase, and then uh, you know when do you know when it's time to you know to pull back and uh, try something else yeah i i have this like imaginary line in my head that is is the year 2015 and uh before 2015 uh you know give or take of course but um that's where i felt uh building a brand went from easy-ish to really really hard in terms of back then like people will ask me like you know, we, we, we launched Antihero in 2010. It technically, 2012 is when it went into cans. And then in 2015, we released my favorite beer, which is Fist City, our pale ale. And I have all these people say, like, I can't believe Fist City isn't bigger than Antihero. No offense, but I like Fist City so much more. And I'm like, no offense taken. I, I drink 10 Fist Cities for every one Antihero. I just love pale ales. It's like my favorite beer. Um, but I always tell them, like, Antihero came out in 2012 when there was like six breweries in Chicago. And it was like the first brewery that screamed IPA and went for it and made itself uh, accessible in like all the stores. And we just kind of went for it early. Um, Fist City came out in this 2015, push into 2016 timeframe when there was a hundred and some breweries in Chicago and everybody was throwing out everything and a brand starts to sort of get lost. And it, what, uh, launching a new brand wasn't as like, you didn't just get this instant notoriety. Back then, if you launched a new brand, it would just show up and everybody saw it on the store shelf. You didn't have to do anything for it. People would want to try it because there just wasn't an overwhelming amount of new like there is today. So now 
it's all about prioritization. So like if a concept for a new beer or we have the liquid because we are always making just one-offs at our brew pub and on just like our one-barrel system, if the concept for a new beer comes up and people say, hey, Doug, we think that this could be something big, the question always has to be, is it big enough to be one of our top three or maybe even top five priorities? Because we, my head always goes to our sales team. How many things can you give our sales team and say, give this focus. You cannot do that to 12 things. And we have over 12 products, but there's certain things. There's only so many, especially with something new that requires education, requires explaining over and over again. They can only t ask a store to carry so many things or a bar. They can only run through so many to, and, and encouraging the bar. This would make sense for you. Um, so you sometimes a concept will come to me and I'll say, do you see this being something that we push harder than Antihero, Hazy Hero, Freedom Lemonade, Fist City, and this? And they're like, well, no. And I'll say, well, just so you know, that's never going to be successful unless we decide, yes, it is. So there's just only so many products you can go big with. And this kind of ties into a, a, another trend happening. This isn't something I really wrote about in my uh, preview post, but um, this idea of brand extension, something that's been happening for 10 years. We've been, every IPA for the most part we've made for 10 years has the word hero in it. So everyone, we create our own like Marvel universe of our own hero characters and theme them around the type of IPA we're making. That's been happening and other breweries have their own versions of that, Firestone with the Jacks. Um, bells with the, the, the hardeds. It's been happening. It's nothing new. But all of a sudden, we're seeing a, a, a snowball effect of like a, more of these than we ever thought were possible are happening right now. And the biggest benefit of these, like building a whole family of brands, like a, a recent one was Dead Guy, uh, Rogue Dead Guy Ale also uh, launched Dead Guy IPA. Yeah. And I said, like, this makes a lot of sense to me because now your sales team can go in and talk about dead guy as a as a family and they can like have one thing they're talking about that could represent two and i'm sure someday there'll be a third dead guy and maybe a fourth but it, it just simplifies this complicated world that every brewery has built for themselves nobody has a simple portfolio for the most part everybody has done more and more and more and now these uh these brand extensions and keeping ipas with something in common like all of them having hearted in it all of them having jack in it in our case all, all of them having hero in it just makes it easier to explain that if you see hero you know that's a, a riff on ipa of some kind from revolution and so that that's something we look for with our new brands to come back to your original question of how do we how do we help give this life as we it, it is very helpful to help tie it in to something else you do because at this point people are so lost and overwhelmed with too many new beer brands so how can you give this new thing something familiar with something else you've done that they know they liked so if you liked this hero there's a decent chance you might like this one too because they have that word hero in common with it. And it's hard to build that kind of baseline familiarity out there in just a general beer consumer audience. Um, but that feeling of trust that you can build because they've had a good experience with one um, can potentially extend to the other. Now, there's also a downside to that, that if you don't fulfill on the promise that of that original brand and that then their relationship with that, then uh, you could spoil that customer on the entire thing. Absolutely. Yeah, that's <laughs> why um, I've seen some breweries be willing to go outside of a style 
um, within a family. And so uh, an example of that that I, I very well might have been successful, it's so I don't, it might be too new to know, but like uh, Sierra Nevada, to, to bring up one that everybody's uh, familiar with, you know, they have their little things. They have the hazy little thing, then they made an imperial little thing or uh, something like that. Big um, little thing, yeah. Big little thing. But then they uh, did wild little thing, which was a wheat beer. Now, it's probably a hoppy wheat beer, so it probably has some familiarity to IPA, but typically your wheat beer is not branded in the same like family with the same look and the text in the same place, the same type of design, just a different color. A lot of uh, breweries, including us, don't let the style, a different style, come into a family that's known to be one thing. In this case, the little things were IPAs, and then all of a sudden they're kind of not. They have the wild little thing. I've never had that one, so I don't know how much that is like a sour versus like a sour IPA. I, I'm guessing it's more of just like a sour. So they break, uh, these aren't the rules, there are no rules. Uh, my kind of rules are like keep the families within a certain style of beer so that you, that you don't do what you're saying, which is, um, uh, potentially disappoint someone who's just trusting you. Oh, another little thing. I like the other little thing, so I must like this one, but has never had a sour beer before. Uh, that's a risk you take. And it has the potential to really work out for you by someone saying, oh, I've never had a beer that tastes sour. I actually like this. This is, they had it on a hot day outside. This is great. But then you're going to get also people that are like, something's wrong with this beer. This is infected. I'm sure you get some of that too, because some people don't, read everything or just choose not to put that much thought into it. They just see something they know and trust and they grab it. And that's how a lot of people shop. Yeah. You know, I think with Wild Little Thing, it almost feels like the acidity there is, you know, fruit derived more so than just sour beer kind of culture derived. And I think that that is a fascinating way to think about the flavor, you know, commonality between the, the family itself, that if you're already in a, you know, fruity, hazy, uh, you know, fruit-driven hop character there that, you know, potentially it does make sense to drive more of that fruit flavor, even if yeah, that fruit flavor brings more acidity with it. Uh, uh, I hadn't even thought about it in those terms before you just mentioned it, but uh, I think, you know, that, that I mean, that's Sierra Nevada thinking uh, several steps ahead of, uh, of folks around that. But I think we, well, you can also see it in the kind of uh, mind haze, Firestone Walker, uh, you know, realm where they are now extending this IPA line with fruited beers, um, because again, if you're uh, if you are into the kind of more fruit forward flavors of hazy IPA, um, it can be a natural extension then to to jump into actual fruited beers on top of that. For sure, um, I do think that that's interesting that you draw that line at 2015 because even amongst uh, what we might call more hyped smaller craft brewers, uh, they will also say the exact same thing to me that uh, you know if you wanted to create a trillium now, it's really hard. To do that, you could not create a treehouse now. Um, that that is a product of a very particular time and space in that kind of 2013, 2014 growth phase, and uh, you know, and then the door kind of shut on that. That it has been exceedingly hard, and there, of course, no one has done it since Treehouse has done it. Uh, there's no way to build a 50,000 barrel brewery where you sell every bit of your beer on you know, on your own premise. I mean, or almost all of it. I mean, that's it's absolutely insane to think about it that way. Um, but some of that opportunity that existed in that 2012, 2013, 2014 space, um, really those opportunities, they just got too crowded after about 2015. And uh, and we just haven't seen another brewery 
be able to do that kind of thing since. But it is interesting to think about it in that time since. Let's come back and talk about a few more things. Obviously, cold IPA is something I want to talk about. Before we do that, from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brew House to the integrated hotbacks on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brew houses, SS Brewtech has taken technology they invented, working with world-renowned industry veterans, and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head on over to ssbrewtech.com. Also, have you heard of Christian Hansen? They're the fermentation experts with over 100 years' experience in dairy and wine, and they are now bringing that knowledge of microbes to brewers with their SmartBev range of frozen liquid yeast and freeze-dried bacteria. This portfolio allows for consistent performance at the brewery and produces a range of high-quality brews. Reimagine what your beer can be. Go to chr-hansen.com to learn more about the Smart Bev line of products. So what's your take on cold IPA? Uh, well, at the risk of um, angering some of your audience, I, I've, I've been very pro cold IPA. I, I Even more so that I Does that, pro- is that a Is that a risky stance to take? Because I, am a, I love cold IPA. I'm fanatical about cold IPA. Um, and yeah. I know there's some curmudgeonly brewers out there that uh, that want to hate on it for various reasons, but uh, yeah. uh, I find it the, a very compelling expression of that kind of you know evolution of West Coast IPA. Yeah, I've had a lot of fun, kind of like making jokes on uh, on social media, um, not because I'm this like cold IPA evangelist that I might masquerade as one, but more just like I like having fun with the tension that something in the beer industry can create. And so I just like will play almost both sides of the like I I will make fun of cold IPAs and I will also encourage our brewery to make one because I think that they have uh, I I have a case for them and uh, and that I I think was worthy of doing and we have made one uh, just one. But um, I'm I'm a fan of them, you know, like where to start, I have a couple arguments for them. One is that, you know, the term IPA has evolved so much in the, the umbrella of IPA of what IPA can be. It, to me, it like barely, maybe technically by the TTB standards, but it, does it even mean India pale ale anymore? Are, are hazy IPAs India or pale? Um, the, what, what is IPA? It's the, the three letters have taken over and there's probably other things in this world that are like good examples of this where people say IPA and they know IPA and there's probably people that have no idea what that even stands for nor do they care they just know that they like these hoppy beverages and have, as uh, i don't know why sour IPAs didn't get catch more heat than cold IPA but it's it it does tend to come down to this ale versus lager yeast so to me like the definition of IPA became more of a of a hoppy beverage, but I know it does technically still mean ale. And in most cases, yes, you could do a coal sheast and make it still technically an ale. But in most cases, these are uh, using like a Pilsner yeast. And um, I love the educational moment that is happening when uh, anybody curious who's dabbling in the IPA world, which is such a high percentage of craft brew beer uh, customers, uh, who follows a brewery's rotating series, their brand family of IPAs. And the, when, when, when a cold IPA comes out, it uh, creates the natural question of, cool, I'm going to buy whatever the heck this is, but what does cold IPA mean? And you say, oh, well, this one uses a lager yeast and those ferment cold. And, and when you explain that, and th- that conversation is having a, being had across the bar, it's being had on social media descriptions, um, all of a sudden there's this kind of slight leveling up of consumer knowledge of getting 
that aspect of what does make an ale different than a lager. So many people don't know that. Most people don't know that, and that's okay. But I love when a style has a chance to have that extra something that uh, creates a natural question. And to me, this is like, you know, so many brewers, it's like if you want lagers to take off, you know, that's not going to happen in one year. It's going to happen very, very slowly over the course of many years by doing lots of different things to create these little educational moments here and there. Um, little experiences the consumers remember and slowly build that lager fandom amongst former IPA fans, not former like they're done with it, but getting people to bridge into it. So I've always thought of cold IPA as this. I've created a meme once of a drawbridge where the drawbridge was halfway up and the drawbridge is cold IPA. The side of the, the connected uh, is IPAs and then the across the river is lagers and the cold IPA is this like drawbridge. And so um, I... Completely, I've heard all the uh, you know arguments against, and I, I respect them. I have no problem with them, but I am uh, I'm all for it. I find it interesting, and I think you know the more that the more that we you know drill down in this world of brewing, the more you realize that uh, the lines that you thought existed don't really exist um, technically. You know that that when we create uh, definitions of things, that those are broad descriptions and they are not all encompassing and then they are very imperfect at, you know, at, at uh, absolute best. Um, and that the way that people are fermenting ales um, in oftentimes are now fermenting even Chico yeast in the same exact temperature range that other brewers are making uh, cold IPAs and fermenting with their quote unquote lager yeasts. And, uh, and so things again are much, just much more complex, uh, much more, uh, uh, you know, technically mixed than we might want to admit around those things. Uh, and so the clear ideas we have, and I guess there are certainly those folks that get tied into some of those historical definitions of things and have a hard time admitting that the lines are blur blurrier than they are. Uh, and that's, I think, where we find some of the conflict around this. But I think one thing that you can't deny is the idea of cold IPA as a thing, as a brand, it's, it's really good. Like, it sounds good. Because I, you know, just as an objective person, I, I hear cold IPA. And I want to drink about 10 of those to every one India Pale Lager um, that somebody might put on a, a menu that uh, cold IPA just sounds better, um, yeah. you know, India for a consumer that's, yeah. Another thing I say is, you know, India Pale Lager died for a reason. You know, people didn't like them. So in that time where it was kind of away, from most places, no offense, Jack's Abbey. I know a bunch of places like kept kept to, kept them going, but in in the general sense, breweries were not making India Pale lagers. And then in that time, a whole new swath of hop innovation happened. New hop varieties that focused on different flavors came out, and uh, then not to mention all the other like slight tweaks to technique that uh, most cold IPAs execute on. When you make those changes that, yes, they use the uh, many things in common with the original blueprint of an India Pale Lager, but so much has changed from when those were out and failed and went away for a reason. If you're bringing them back, why would you call it that same old name that stopped working? Why wouldn't you want to put a new spin on it? And I, I, guess, I know people would say, no, that's okay. We just don't want it to be IPA. <laughs> we're sick of IPAs. Totally get it. But the reason it's happening is just the familiarity with the style. You attach IPA to it, you're going to get more and more people willing to try it. And it's just kind of like one of those uh, concessions that I think you have to make um, because it, it just, it works. 
IPA is like the uh, it's like the meta brand fa- uh, brand family. Like it is the ultimate overarching. If you like this, you might like that. Uh, you know, kind of connector between those. Um, certainly, maybe it's lost. You know, it undoubtedly is lost. You know, some specific meaning there. But at the same time. I mean, you you know, as an industry, you can't complain when consumers have this general knowledge and feel like they may like something because it, you know it is encompassed in this term. And of course, it's just natural for every business to to find those ways to try to draw those connections. But um, that brings up another interesting point. Let's talk about lager. You know, this is certainly something close to uh, to brewers' hearts. We are watching this increasing. Um, growth of loggers and you know from what i can tell you know all of us within the beer industry we're looking nervously on this over the last few years like is this a real trend is this something that we are just willing into being or are there actual commercial legs to this and i think at this point you know brewers are doing a great job of educating consumers about this of trying to create a value proposition for the idea of craft lager which is hard since there are decent loggers out there in the general market that are much, much less expensive than what a craft brewer would need to sell their product for. And very um, well mar- and very well marketed. Very us. well marketed. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so, um, you know, from from your standpoint at, at Revolution, do you see real commercial legs to this world of craft lager? Um, you know, out here in Colorado, where I mean, I can go down to Denver and I'm going to get, I can get Czech lagers at uh, cohesion. I can get German style lagers at Bierstadt. Uh, I can, you know, get, there are at least five or six different lager only breweries within the kind of Metro Denver and uh, extended suburbs realm. Um, it's fascinating to see just how specialized, you know, some of this can get, but even within, you know, some of the, the, uh, you know, larger brand families, uh, how are loggers doing in this kind of scope? Have you been able at a revolution kind of scale to connect loggers with craft consumers? Not really. We, we try and we will continue to try, uh, as long as we exist, I believe, (laughs) but, um, it is a struggle. I'll be honest. Like we have a year round Pilsner and it's our brewer's favorite beer and it's our worst seller but um it's not something we're trying to make go away uh we keep it local so we only need uh the chicago audience uh, of retail uh to support it but um it's great people love it our regulars love it again our employees love it it's just you know and it's it's pretty affordably priced compared to every other craft lager out there it's just you can only um there's just only so many people out there that are willing to pay that craft beer price, that over $10, the 11, the 12, the 13 for the six pack or four pack of a craft lager. It's just still small. It is growing. It's just growing slowly, um, which is okay. Slow can be healthy uh, and sustainable. But um, as an IPA brewery, it's it's even harder. And we have, uh, three probably more uh breweries two in the city one in the suburbs um shout out dovetail metropolitan goldfinger who are making exclusively or pretty close to exclusively all lagers and i think more and more markets now have at least one of those or had one and now have two you know using like bierstadt in denver but you've got other ones now doing um presenting lagers and making it a big focus of theirs Again, it's hard to do so many different things, and um, we are dying to try to crack this nut and have a lager. And uh, my mind is constantly racing of the best way to be successful doing that. 
And um, it's like, do you try to compete on price and do what I was just talking about with the session IPA and what makes that hard? And uh, how do you, how do you, is there a demand for this IPA brewery to make an American lager? That's something I think about a lot, a lot. And I think like, no, not really. I mean, yes, we have these loyal diehards who are maybe exhausted from IPA that would love a beer like that and would totally drink it in our tap rooms. But trying to sell big 12 packs or, or larger is a, just a whole different uh, game, a, a game that's like really, really hard to compete on. So um, is this, yeah, is lager something that you need to then think about a you know, different format for selling it in? I mean, the consumption mode for lager tends to be, you know, something I want to drink in some sort of quantity and, you know, so sporting events or, you know, it could be a nice thing to drink along with a meal. Um, is that more draft focused than packaged beer where I want to buy my 10% beer and package to take it home and, uh, you know, versus the lager that I want to drink when I, uh, you know, when I'm out someplace and have to drive myself home? Kind of. I mean, it's like if you, if, if we're talking about draft and at a restaurant, like, Hey, maybe they would like your, um, craft American premium lager and they'd be willing to have it on, but do they already have your IPA? And if they make that switch. Is that actually good for business? Because they're not going to want to pay the IPA price for that keg because they're not going to be able to charge the IPA price on their menu necessarily. And you're like, wait, am I hurting my business by doing this? So it's like you want to go after the places that don't currently support your existing and, and you have to identify that opportunity and say, is this worth it? If we give focus to this thing, which uh, typically, and this is where I'm talking about like doing a more traditional light lager. I'm not talking about doing like a big, strong Bach here or like a Dunkelweiss. And yeah. I'm talking about like, um, trying to hit that more mainstream audience that drinks Coors Banquet, Miller High Life, um, maybe even like Paps and their nostalgia brands. Um, I love the, all the branding on those. If you're trying to do your own version of that, um, I think about that a lot. Um, we have awesome liquid that could be that. Um, and we have some on draft right now. And, uh, it's, uh, something I think about every day of like, how do you, how do you make, how do you, uh, invade that turf? And, uh, I don't know how you do it. Uh, I'll be honest. I, I, I don't know if it's a nut that can be cracked. Um, you can always do the Firestone 805 model, which is kind of almost spin this thing off and into like its own animal, but you have to have a huge amount of money to put behind that to get people to know what it is. You connect it to a lifestyle and uh, be more than just this new liquid, but connect it to your locality. That's what they did there with embracing California. Miller Coors, they can't compete with that. They can't make their lager embrace Cal the California vibes because they have a whole country to worry about. But if you're just, the, the focus of that is California, so they can lean more into what would resonate in this turf uh, where they're going to really push this the hardest. So I think that's part of the way to make, make this successful. So for us, it's got to be something like heavy Chicago. If we're going to sell this, most of this in Chicago, how do you make it lean into Chicago? And I think that's the best way to try to get a, I think that might be the only way to get a Miller Coors, perhaps someone like that drinker to drink your kind of better, more premium, maybe less not adjuncted version of a, of an American lager, you know, hit that premium, hit that local and make the brand be something that would resonate, especially to local people. 
it's been fascinating to watch this, and you write a little bit about this in your in your preview that uh, and we've written about this in the Brewing Industry Guide, in particular, watching craft brewery brands create separate um, lager brands that somehow feel that that make some appeal to uh, a retro appeal. That maybe they're reviving an older brand. A lot of it is centered. I mean, you know, within craft breweries, trying to compete with Narragansett and this kind of accessible you know uh you know historical beer that feels like it's you know maybe even feels like a pbr and appeals to that hipster without uh it actually having the same kind of uh you know even though it's made by a craft brewer in a lot of cases like we did a, you know a profile of uh, dc brow and, and rather than take on contract brewing they decided to create a, a revive buy rights to an older beer brand and bring out a lager based on this kind of, uh, you know, more accessible, lower priced lager when it's stuck in the, the you know, cases next to these other accessible lager brands rather than stuck in the craft case where uh, with more expensive beers. And so it's priced differently and it's definitely a volume play. But, uh, you know, Montucky Cold Snacks is another example of that. Um, you know, Classic City Lager, you know, from, from Creature Comforts, another great example. You know, we're seeing over and over again craft breweries try to create some more historically minded, more, you know, you know, typical beer flavor, typical beer imagery kind of brands so that these things – you know, can appeal to a different kind of customer. I, I think the mistake they're making is uh, it's almost like our 2015 imaginary line. And you, it's hard to compare yourself to this brand that has had 40 years of brand building behind it. And most of which was in an era where there wasn't too many beers. There wasn't this overwhelming number of beer on the shelf. So if you say, yeah, we're going to make the next, uh, we're going to be old style. It's like, no, old style was the beer of the Chicago Cubs for how many, how many years, like everybody knows what that is because of years, decades of work that was done, of brand building that was done. You can't just make that and uh, have like a one year of patience for it to work. Like it's, it's not because it's not. And, but if you come in with some kind of big, long five to 10 year commitment, knowing that we are going to lose money on this logger in year one, probably in year two. And then maybe in year three or four is when we're actually making money because we realize the only way this is going to work is if we invest, 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 invest. And then we can kind of pull things back. We've got a penetration into the market. We've got a consumer base that is now loyal that's buying this beer on the regular. Now, it, And it's just really hard to do that now. It's, it's hard to be that patient, but you kind of need to be if you want to try something new. Sure, sure. Let's talk about fruit. Fruits a subject, uh, you know, again, maybe a polarizing one, maybe even a little more polarizing than cold IPA among certain circles. Over the last 10 years, the uh, growth and prevalence of fruit in beer uh, has caused some uh, traditionalists some chagrin, but at the same time has uh, opened up the beer category and made craft beer uh, and the experimentation in ways of using fruit and finding ways to build those flavors that connect with people. Um, you know, it's created a lot of consumers for, for craft beer who might not have to find themselves as craft beer consumers before some of those products existed and with the kind of ubiquity that they do now. Um, what's your prognosis for fruit over the next couple of years in beer? Um, where do you see this going? Uh, what do you think the challenges are? What do you think the opportunities are? Um, well, I think fruit is great. It, it kind of helps you attack the uh, fan who doesn't like the taste of beer. Um, and you can kind of use fruit to, um, you know, shift, change their mind a little bit on that. 
And so, um, you know, I think it's a, an incredible vehicle for, in IPAs, it's fine. You know, it's, it's like, sure, uh, I have no, no issue with it. It's not, we've made plenty of fruited double dry hop beers, but we also kind of stopped about a year and a half ago. We just were like, eh, we just kind of moved away from that and nobody for the most part seemed to, to care. So we moved on, but we use them for our, um, sour beer. It's probably uh, after our IPAs, our second biggest priority is uh, a line of beers we have called our freedom session sours. Um, they all have a very tight, uh, continuity between them and that they're all exactly four and a half percent alcohol. They all use the same, uh, base beer, but then are uh, treated differently with, uh, with fruit. Um, occasionally a natural flavor, but flavor, but usually just uh, straight fruit for them. And, uh, those work great. I mean, those are like helping us develop a new audience because there are people that don't like IPAs and don't like lagers, which I'd call, you know, beer that tastes like beer in, in a lot of senses. Um, but they're, they like these and we've tried to position them as not like a wine, not like a cocktail, but that people that like wine and cocktails, but maybe don't want to have that, uh, you know, you can pay the price the next day for drinking a little too much wine, but there isn't like session wine out there, or if there is, it's not a very big thing. And we've tried to position our sours, which lean on the real fruit as the primary talking point, you know, whereas like in a world of hard, hard seltzers that were mostly those essences that uh, don't necessarily, you know, blow you away with, with flavor, um, we've been able to change that by using actual fruit in these and uh, make them resonate and open up the doors to someone who I, I love the idea of, you know, supporting a local craft brewery. And I like that they're kind of down the street from me or in my neighborhood or uh, that I can go to the tap room, but I just don't like IPAs. I don't like lagers. Fruit has the opportunity to open doors to um, almost any style. And it's not that it has to be IPAs and sours. That's what I've hit on. There's fruited lagers now, which it not totally what I'm pushing, but uh, I have no issue with them either. You know, uh, one of my favorite Chicago breweries, I think is doing a lime lager and I've seen others uh, in my blog post. I think I showed a uh, stone, a, st a picture of a st one that stone did. And, uh, that makes Even sense. Five has yeah. their, their lime log Mexican lager. Yeah. Sure. sure. It's, it's just a way to differentiate and kind of open the door to, to someone who's like, well, I don't really like lagers, but lime lager. I might like that. I like Corona with a lime, so maybe I would like this lime lager that they're selling. So um, I, I, I have no issue. I don't see much of a downside to, to trying uh, fruit in a beer of just about any style. Um, there's certain angles where I think it's you know a better opportunity than others, but I'm all for it. How much life do you think there is in this fruited uh, kettle sour, quick sour you know, kind of category? You know, we watched hard seltzer grow uh, at a phenomenal rate, um, but at the same time now it seems to have kind of hit a limit, and uh, you know, and it does ask that question. It, you know, amongst consumers, that balancing that wanting to consume something clear and quote unquote clean, um, whether it is or not, it appears that way to people. And so it fits that kind of mentality, but also low calorie. Um, you know, that seems to exist in tension against this idea of gen newer generations of drinkers wanting that flavor. And we see that in so many other ways that they. Um, they have a heightened sense of flavor because everything in the, on, that's hitting their palate um, across the entire food and beverage spectrum is more flavorful now than it may have been 
10 or 20 or 30 years ago. You know, their coffee is stronger. Um, you know, the, the spice in their Chipotle is, is a little, is heavier. Um, you know, and so especially, and I'm just talking about in American context, primarily here, um, we have grown more accustomed to in more a greater intensity and more contrast in everything that we consume. Even our televisions, um, can hit a higher color gam gamut, more sharpness, you know, more brightness, more contrast. And so all of our senses are growing more and more attuned to this kind of heightened intensity. Um, you know, how do you then see this kind of, you know, the future of this category and uh, where do you, where do you see that kind of kettle quick sour thing going over the next few years? I think it can go nowhere but up in my opinion, because I think it is, it is so tiny. Um, it, it's microscopic and like, like our sour line, we, we're, we're, we're not even in, I don't think we sell it in 10 states and we're like the seventh biggest sour in the country or something, just to give you an idea of how small the category is that, um, you know, some of the challenges are like the term sour, is that the right word for these? I think it's becoming slowly more and more, uh, accepted. I don't think there's ever going to be this year where the, the growth chart, like goes parabolic and goes straight up. But I think um, thanks to things like kombucha, um, that kind of, I think kombuchas have just like a major crossover to what sour beers taste like. Um, you know, obviously there's quick sours versus barrel aged sours and different to different degrees, depending on which we're talking about. But if we're talking about quick sours, like I just think the familiarity with those, you know, when those were being made in like 2013, when, you know, everybody would trade for Westbrook, Goza, um, like those were like really intense and a lot of people like kind of exploring we're all for intensity and then now it's like <clears throat> hey let's dial that back a little bit let's make these something that uh, don't make you wince or wouldn't make someone trying their first one wince and say no way get that away from me that is gross like uh they've really come down and become more approachable in terms of acidity level there yeah yeah exactly so um I think just the the boom of kombucha, young fans. I think sour ha is a little bit counterculture. I think people are like, it's not cool to like IPAs anymore because everybody, you know, it, it's almost like cooler to say I'm sick of IPAs. And I think sour is so small that it's a fun like like some people want to try something just because it's different and just because they're tired of IPAs being all they see on the shelf. So they're open to trying them. I don't. I wouldn't uh, read too much into like trends and scan data because we're still looking at really weird uh the data we're looking back on is not good data from when are we looking back on a time where bars were closed in so many areas and so oh, the only beer you could buy was beer from the supermarket um to the point where now bars are much more so open so of course people are buying less beer at the store because they're also going out more often than they were a year and a half, two years ago. So there's some of that, but uh, I think sours are still very healthy and it's, it's so tiny, it doesn't take much. All it takes is, you know, Sierra Nevada uh, moving their wild little thing from their fifth priority to their fourth. And all of a sudden the whole sour category looks like it's up. You know, one like change in that of what a major brewery, it, that's how small it is. That if yeah. New Belgium decides Dominga, Let's make this uh, our uh, let's let's instead of Dominga being our fifth, let's go Voodoo Rangers, Fat Tire, and then let's go Dominga third instead of whatever the heck was third before that. All of a sudden, sour could be up fifty percent 
just from New Belgium deciding, let's go for it with this brand. So it's just it, it's just so small they can move at that the markets point. Like that. So yeah. yeah, it's like that's why I don't bother looking too much at scan data on sours, and you just kind of look at what you're doing, where you're putting it in the ranking of things you're focusing on, and asking your sales team to hit hard on in the market. And the success it's going to be, you kind of get what you put into it. Do you see and do you see that the changing consumption places and occasions? Um, you know, are going to create more opportunity for that? Do you see more brands pushing that up uh, one spot in priority um, just because now there are more places and times when people might make that consumption decision? Yeah, so I can give a good example from my own experience of what we did. We had a lot, we had a year round sour called Freedom of Speech, good name for a peach beer, haha, Freedom of Speech. And then that was doing well for us, and we decided right when pandemic started and variety packs were hot, 12 packs were hot, everything was working uh, in favor of, hey, let's make four of these and let's make a 12-pack variety pack. So we did that. That was going well. And then um, uh, this was a big project of mine um, from the brand side, not so much the liquid side. But um, I wanted to say, you know, knowing that that term sour was still like an educational hurdle or uh, doesn't sound appealing to everybody. And how do you get past that? So um, we made our next entry into this series of this, what was turning it, which was went from one brand to a whole family of brands, our second biggest, is uh, was like, how do we put a familiar concept behind this? And so we launched a beer called Freedom Lemonade. So it had the freedom. Uh, connection of freedom of speech, but called a freedom lemonade, where we make a we use lemon puree, but also use a simple syrup that we make, and uh, still like the all the others four and a half percent. So basically, we took a familiar concept that everybody knows that everybody loves to drink in these situations, and put that behind an existing brand of freedom, use the same base beer and everything. So by adding that familiarity to it, all of a sudden you get people who realize how much more authentic lemonade tasting this is than a shandy, which was typically our main option for someone who wants an alcoholic drink but likes lemonade. It was like shandy, shandy, shandy. So we, we thought we could, uh, and we played around for a while with it, and we got something to taste like old-fashioned lemonade but using our existing base and the uh, simple syrup to give it that little bit of sweetness it needed to really make you feel like you're drinking lemonade and then using real fruit. And so that was a smash hit for us and was something that we had no major plans for on draft and then turned into a draft phenomenon. We happened to launch two new markets, Iowa and Minnesota, um, just a few months after we launched that brand. So for going to these retailers who currently, we had never been in the market before, all of a sudden, they were asking, saying, "Like, yeah, we just we, Freedom Lemonade is what we want on draft." And we were like, "Whoa, uh, what about Antihero? What about this IPA?" And they were like, "Oh, we got plenty of IPAs, but we have nothing like this Freedom Lemonade." And so, all of a sudden, that that brand, because of it being introduced at the same time we were going to new places, it took off as a draft option, and it gave us a chance to compete with something that wasn't like something that the the 20 other awesome Iowa or Minnesota breweries that kill it in the market, they didn't have something like this. So it gave us a, an entry point and hitting a different occasion, trying to, the educational gap is now like getting a Shandy fan to try this and show that how we, like, we think it's way better than a Shandy and uh, just connects to the theme of lemonade even better. And, but it has that sourness to it and can open your eyes to thinking, maybe I do like a sour. 
That's right, because lemonade has that acidity. People expect it. They're familiar with it. They know it. Then you know it's it's not, uh, uh, you know, it feels natural within that kind of scope. Um, that's very interesting. There's so much more that we could talk about here. We haven't talked about hop water, non-alcoholic beer. You know, there's, there's a lot of other product categories that we just won't have time to talk about. But one thing I do want to talk about is some of the kind of turbulence that we're now you know starting to see. I think it's natural for all of us in the in the beer industry to see breweries closing, to see things like, you know, the Brewers Association putting out statistics around last year about how many fewer brewery openings that there were. Um, all of us, I think it's human nature to be tuned in to the bad news um, and to be prepared for and have a narrative of uh, things going the wrong way. I think we are finely tuned as human beings to sense danger and that we oftentimes maybe sense a little more danger than uh, than we should or that we draw bigger things out of some of the small things that we see. Um, you know, we are, however, now in this point where we've had a lot of breweries open. Not all of those concepts are going to work. Um, you know, it's natural within the world of hospitality. We, we you know, no one has ever cried about the fact that, you know, uh, a significant portion of every restaurant uh, turns over every year, that uh, that's the nature of hospitality, that things come and things go. Um, some things work and they work for a while and then they don't work. And then, uh, you know, those business owners either sell or they, they change uh, focus or, you know, the those businesses evolve in some way or another way. Um, you know, from your perspective, you know, how, are you, how do you feel about where we are in this world of craft beer business right now in terms of openings, closings of the kind of churn within the hospitality industry in general. And, you know, beer is having to deal with this moving from a packaged product business to, in a lot of cases, a pure hospitality business, a taproom focused or brew pub focused uh, way of selling beer, which is different than a uh, packaged goods approach. And so that puts it into firmly into that world of hospitality, which has different dynamics, you know, to that industry as a whole. Um, you know, from your perspective, uh, you know, what, what's your take on this? Yeah, it's tough because there's just so many different situations out there. Um, there was an old uh, Tony McGee, founder of Lagunitas, uh, phrase that he used that I love and I think about all the time when I'm asked these kind of questions. And he said that, you know, as breweries, we're all points on a curve meaning the curve being kind of the lifespan and the growing pains and the maturation of a brewery, that's what the curve is. And we all started at different times and we all have our own sets of variables, but we're all on these curves, but there's not just one curve. There's like the curve of a national, maybe regional brewery. And then there's a curve of a brewery that's more of just like a brew pub and uh, all those different business models in between. And Different breweries started at different times, invested differently. Some made every beer look like nothing like the other, and some focused more on the brewery itself and made the brand and the style of beer kind of secondary to building like we are this. And um, everybody's just so different. And then in 20, you know, pre-pandemic, late 2019, kicking off 2020, you know, we were having tough, tough conversations uh, about the same things we're talking about now. And that was three years ago, uh, over three years ago now. Um, and then everything changed. We, um, you know, we had the pandemic, then we had this, uh, economics wise, we had this influx of cash in everybody's bank account, 
where, um, you know, thanks to stimulus, thanks to so many ways you no longer could spend your money, um, everybody had a little bit of extra to throw at craft beer, to throw at library sales and barrel age sales and all these premium products, especially in the first year of it in 2020. That between that and the uh, PPP uh, loan support that uh, every brewery, uh, uh, most if not uh, all who are eligible, could apply for and get all this funds to basically take care of your labor and other expenses and really took the heat off. And then that got kind of renewed for another round in 2021. And there was just like all these economic factors propping up a craft industry that was already showing uh, some chinks in the armor uh, of, of uh, saturation. And uh, then it just, everything kind of got delayed until now. And now we're at the point where those uh, we have a, we have credit problems in our country. We have uh, people who have used dipped too far into their credit cards instead of having all this stimulus hitting their bank account. Now it's gone gone negative on their credit cards, and um, the cost of everything is going up. Whereas uh, our wages aren't necessarily keeping up, and so there's just you know it's not that the craft beer is getting crushed right now. It's that it's getting hurt by like 10, 15 percent, something like that, which Sounds about right. I mean, pick any company you want that's a public company that's something you support, like like a product you use, like uh, Spotify or something like that, and go look at their stock price <laughs> over the last three years and sure, see sure. see how see how down every single company that's operating in a market, see what they're doing, and then look at how much how, how down craft beer sales, and it actually doesn't look so bad. And so we're in a, a stormy time where um, you know, decisions have to be made, and not, not every craft brewery is the same. There are 2,000-barrel craft breweries that uh, were founded by a, you know, a husband and a wife that uh, are, are they're like kind of paycheck to, they're like month by month in terms of making ends meet. And there's 2,000-barrel breweries that are a, a side project of a rich uh, multimillionaire. And to customers, those are just two equally sized breweries, but they have very different factors uh, where, where the, the rich multimillionaire can just be like, can, no big deal. Like we'll have a few years where we're just kind of breaking even or lose a little bit, no big deal. Then there's others that that's not an option for them. That can't be done. And then again, there's some that you know invested so well in their brand and then there's some that just relied on trend by trend by trend and there's no real trends right now there are but they're not like they're not like there was from 2015 to 2019 where there was just like always something new you could glom onto that everybody was excited about and it would uh keep interest uh keep everybody thirsty uh for for the next thing that's harder than ever to do now so like all these kind of like economic factors just like my main thing is that just Right now, it's it, it's it just kind of depends on what kind of uh, financial situation you are. Whether this could be a time to like double down if you have the flexibility to do that, and that could make uh, your brewery level up to the to the next big thing in this time. But then there's other breweries who just need to survive and just need to simplify what they're doing, get through this. It might not just be six months. This could be 18 months. This could be 24 or 36. But it'll eventually turn, and uh, if you can uh, whittle things down to making sure you're focusing on the things you're best at, and not trying to 
throw too many noodles at the wall right now right now and just lean into what's working for some that need to be more conservative and make sure they get through this and don't have that pile of cash sitting there to float them through this time. Um, that's where I think it's all about focus, prioritization, and a little bit of simplification too. Sure, sure. And I think what you say is exactly right. We look at the tech world um, that's now embracing large-scale layoffs, So, which in the scope of, I, I mean, you have to look at it in the sense of they added a lot of employees over the last several years also. And so um, we're, there's still that industry is still net up significantly over the last three or four years. You know, craft beer is still net up, even if uh, it's hitting some you know, some short-term challenges that are hitting the entire macro economy and facing lots and lots of small, you know, small family-owned businesses now, too. Um, and even we see it, you know, our, our costs increase. Um, printing costs for us have gone up 60% in the last two years. It's absolutely insane. Uh, you know, and so just like everybody else, you try to manage, you try to make good decisions, you try to focus on those things that have opportunities ahead of them and uh, you try to put your energy into the things that people want from you um, so that you can make sure that the, you know, the business is in good shape going forward uh, doesn't mean nothing's guaranteed but uh but at the same time well again we're we're all just points on this curve and uh, we can't see the future exactly we can just uh, you know the the net of it is that the lifespan of every business uh you know is different but everyone will eventually end um you know none of these but none of this is forever um but they can be successful businesses and provide happiness to customers and to uh, to employees and provide meaningful work um, for us during our lives here and uh, and it's a pretty fun way to do it too, isn't it? Here in craft beer. Agreed. Well said. Well, let's uh, let's bring it to a close. GD Chillers has partnered with three thousand plus breweries around the country and offers twenty four seven service and support. TNS Hop Oils can help you save on freight and reduce waste while improving beer quality. AccuBrew gives, gives brewers like you unprecedented insight into your fermentation process. ProBrew solutions are specifically designed to help you brew your beer. Trust the experts at Old Orchard to handle freight for your ingredients. SS BrewTech has taken technology they invented working with world-renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer and Christian Hansen is bringing their knowledge to brewers with their smart bev range of frozen liquid yeast and freeze-dried bacteria. Um, Doug, if people want to learn more about all the things you're involved in, from uh, Beer Aficionado on your socials to your Beer Crunchers blog uh, to, of course, Revolution Brewing, uh, where do they find you in all of these kinds of spaces? Sure. On Instagram and TikTok, I use the handle Beer Aficionado. Try to uh, combine some entertaining uh, content or me just making a fool out of myself uh, with some educational stuff, too. Sometimes me in front of a whiteboard explaining how something works. Uh, so Beer Aficionado on those channels. Then my blog is called BeerCrunchers.com, and then that's the handle I use on Twitter. Um, I do try to use each of those feeds a little differently, so it's not just a copy-paste from one to the other, but um, those are the best ways to find me. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate your thoughtful, data-driven, as well as uh, humorous uh, approach to all of these kinds of perspectives on beer, but uh, uh, definitely a thoughtful way to look at all of these things. Doug, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's been great talking with you. Cheers. Thank you, Jamie. I appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.